0: I feel very privileged indeed to be able to spend the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show with Dr. Alan Francis, the author of a very important book called Saving Normal, An Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life. It is the contention of Dr. Francis that that the field of psychiatry seems bent on Uh, what is sometimes called diagnostic inflation, that is, of creating uh, mental disorders and naming them uh, when, in fact, we're not talking about mental disorders or even abnormal behavior at all. Uh, It is Dr. Francis's contention that we need to embrace a wider swath of human experience and behavior as normal with all of its... uh, its variations, and that it is a ruinous path to, uh, to medicalize uh, so many disorders, personal quirks, and, and so on. And uh, one of the ways in which uh, Dr. Francis can call himself an insider is that he comes from the field of psychiatry and actually uh, played a major role in the formation of DSM-IV, that task force, which uh, we'll talk about in terms of what that means. He is now Professor Emeritus and former Chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Duke University School of Medicine. And the book Saving Normal is available in paperback from William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins. Dr. Alan Francis, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank
1: you. I wish I could
0: summarize my book as well as you did. Well, I appreciate that compliment very much. Um, Maybe we can begin by this intriguing choice of words in your subtitle where you call it an insider's revolt. In other words, you are not, from the outside, looking in. You consider yourself an insider, particularly because of the role you played in the formation of a manual called DSM-IV. Tell our listeners what this manual uh... is all about the diagnostic and statistical manual
1: well yeah it's a, it's a it sounds dry but it's a book that has way too much influence it's a bestseller every year It sells hundreds of thousands of copies every year and it, it sort of helps people decide what's normal and what's not who um, who get treatment um, often what that treatment will be who'll pay for it and beyond the clinical it's way too important in decisions about who gets what school service who gets disability People get sent to jail versus uh, psychiatric treatment. Um, It's used in custody battles. People may not be able to get a license to fly a plane if they have a psychiatric diagnosis. It has a kind of uh, powerful influence on all sorts of decisions way beyond its competence. It's become more important and good for itself
0: and for society. You tell us in the book that there was a DSM-1 and a DSM-2, and then DSM-3, the third incarnation or third version of this uh, manual, um, which... uh, Emerged. I don't remember, but some decades ago,
1: nineteen eighty,
0: yeah. right? And what was it about DSM three that was so dramatic uh, and uh, and 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 important?
1: Well, no one before. DSM three cared the slightest bit about psychiatric diagnosis, and it was made, you know, very radically, idiosyncratically. Two clinicians seeing a patient would come up with completely different answers, so the diagnosis was pretty much worthless, and that was destroying the credibility of psychiatry. What DSM three did was provide rules for the road, a set of criteria for each diagnosis, checklist of symptoms and behaviors and durations. And this meant that under ideal conditions, people could agree diagnosis made sense. The real surprise was that the public embraced this in the weirdest way. That um, before DSM-3, the prop- predominant model in, in psychiatry was psychoanalytic, and people would be discussing their dreams at, at cocktail parties. DSM-3 caught the public imagination. It sold like crazy, and people began to diagnose themselves, diagnose their wives and bosses. It became the, a to- hot topic, mm. and then the drug companies really just grabbed it.
0: Right. (laughs) Um, And
1: uh, they saw it as a tremendous marketing device. Instead of having to push pills, they could push ills. They could push psychiatric disorders. And if they could convince the public that um, psychiatric disorder was everywhere, that it was a chemical imbalance, that it required a chemical solution, that would be the best way in the world to sell pills. And they have just um, made fortunes. Uh, misleading people into thinking they had psychiatric illness.
0: Right, you you write DSM three was wildly overbought, both literally and metaphorically. To everyone's surprise, it became a perennial bestseller with hundreds of thousands of copies sold every year. Many more than there are mental health workers. DSM three was the victim of its own success. It became the bible of psychiatry to the exclusion of other aspects of the field that should not have been, but were. Cast Beneath Its Shadow. Explain to our listeners the role that you played in uh, the task force charged with dsm four, which would have been the next reworking of the uh, di- uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Tell us what your responsibilities were and what you sought to do.
1: Well, I was in charge of it, so I, I got to pick the people who were working on it, uh, establish the method that we would use. And I was concerned about overdiagnosis then, and so we we established a method that would we thought strangle change Um, any suggestion that would lead to increased diagnosis had to mount all sorts of obstacles, and um, we were pretty we felt uh, successful in reducing the uh, the the risks of the system. We had 94 suggestions for new diagnoses, we accepted only two of them, uh, both of them bit us in the rear end. I'll tell you about that later if we have time. But we we felt at the time that we'd done our job. It turned out that the um, there've been at least three major epidemics, fake epidemics, of mental disorders since DSM four. So we failed. We thought we were successful in, in reducing the risks, but we failed. The um, three three epidemics are ADHD, which is more than tripled since DSM four was published. Um, autism has gone up by about forty times. Um, the rate of bipolar disorder has gone up dramatically and uh, the different reasons in each instance, but the, the biggest and most preventable cause of diagnostic inflation aside from the fact that the system is too loose, is the enormous power of drug companies to move mountains to get people to feel that they're sick. And in um, 1998, about four years after dsm M four was published, they got this amazing um, freedom um, to advertise directly to consumers and, and to you know flood the airwaves, the internet magazines with um, advertisements that uh, had people who looked just like you and me, but it turned out, no, they had a mental disorder, and that mental disorders were easy to diagnose but often missed, that um, the were always chemical imbalance that required a pill, and then they'd always end with, ask your doctor. Meanwhile, they'd be marketing the doctors like crazy with um, salespeople who were uh, the most beautiful men and women this side of Hollywood waiters. And um, the doctors always had armed on their shelves a free sample of uh, psychiatric drug. And the easiest way to get a patient out of the office quickly would be to uh, give them a pill. It turns out that 80% of psychiatry now is not done by psychiatrists. 80% of psychiatric medicine is being prescribed by primary care doctors. And get this, one in five Americans are taking a psychiatric medicine. So one in five Americans are taking a psychiatric medicine, usually prescribed by a primary care doctor, often after a seven-minute visit. Um, where everyone's primed to think that medicine is necessary, and the result is this ridiculous overuse of medication for people who basically often don't need it. And at the very same time, the cruel paradox is that the people who do need it, the severely ill, it's about 5% of the population, they can't get it. They can't get medicine, they can't get treatment, they often don't have a decent place to live. And the result is that we have 1 million psychiatric patients in prison, um, hundreds of thousands homeless, these are people who could be greatly benefited by adequate access to treatment, a decent place to live. They can't get it. At the same time, we're spending um, tens of billions of wasted dollars a year on uh, psychiatric medication for people who'd be better off without it.
0: You, it, when you make that point in the preface of the book, you talk about this imbalance and of how way too much uh, of our attention uh, and 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 the, the the dollars and cents and time of medical care is given over to the normal, worried well. (laughs) You put that in quotes, the worried well. In other words, people who who actually are normal but are persuaded to think of themselves as not normal because of of one thing or another. And these normal, worried well are absorbing so much of, of mental health care in our country at the expense, as you said, of those who desperately need such care and can't access it.
1: Now, I mean, I think a couple of years ago, the um, antipsychotics were amongst the best-selling, um, biggest revenue-producing drugs in big pharma's um, pocket. They were $18 billion for antipsychotics, $11 billion for antidepressants, um, ten almost $10 billion for drugs for ADHD. At this point, 6% of all kids are on ADHD drugs. 10% of teenage boys are an ADHD drug, often unnecessary. Uh, one in four uh, women over 40 are an antidepressant. Uh, 4% of all teenagers are an antidepressant. Um, it's just gotten way out of hand. It's, it's actually outrageous how drugs are being misused in the general population and being withheld from the people who really need them.
0: One of the uh, concerns you raise beyond just the uh, the specifics of what is contained in DSM-5, the most recent uh, version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, is the fact that the process by which it took shape uh, was, to, to in your mind, to a f- far too much an extent, closed and secretive. Help us understand the process by which this manual gets put together and to what extent, indeed, it is a secretive process, and, and, in, and what way in which that contributes to uh, this very serious problem that you're outlining?
1: Well, psychiatry is just a special case of all of medicine. Most guidelines for treatment and, and for the definition of disease are created by professional associations, and professional associations have an inherent conflict of interest. Experts always want to expand their area, Um, sometimes there's a financial conflict of interest, but that's been overrated. The biggest problem is that experts have an intellectual and emotional conflict of interest. They come to believe the work in their area too much. They have an emotional attachment to their pet diagnoses. They worry greatly about patients who are missed because the criteria are too loose, uh, too too tight. They never worry about patients who will be mislabeled uh, because the criteria are too loose. Experts always assume that their suggestions will be carried out under best practice uh, conditions. And very often, suggestions made in guidelines are carried out instead in worst practice conditions. There's nothing worse than making a psychiatric diagnosis in seven minutes by a primary care doctor. The moment of getting a diagnosis can be a a change point in a person's life. It can be a great thing the diagnosis is necessary, is it accurate and the treatment is necessary. It can be a terrible thing if the diagnosis is inaccurate and may haunt the person for life. The act of diagnosis should be taken enormously seriously by everyone concerned. It's like buying a house or getting married. It's usually not, and experts don't understand that. So they will make up a set of criteria that might work for them but will be disastrous when the drug companies can market it to primary care doctors. And so one of the, the things I suggest is that we shouldn't allow the experts in the field, not just psychiatry. Diabetes experts shouldn't be allowed to define diabetes by themselves. You need their input, but they shouldn't have the final say. Hypertension doctors will tend to always lower the uh, blood pressure that's abnormal. You need to have uh, a kind of broader outlook that doesn't allow the professionals, uh, the experts in the field, to call the final shots.
0: Hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Alan Francis and talking about his book, Saving Normal, an insider's revolt against out-of-control psychiatric diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the medicalization of ordinary life. Um, Dr. Francis, I want you to—I uh, I wish we had the time to really delve into this particular chapter in much greater detail because it's so interesting. Chapter two of your book, From Shaman to Shrink, uh, essentially traces the history uh, of the the whole notion of psychiatry and of the way in which uh, emotional and, and, and mental disorders and problems uh, have been— have been confronted uh, o- over the centuries and uh, it's it's really fascinating to see what i'm i'm not sure is exactly a, a straight line of progression or evolution but but certainly it is a a a fascinating rich colorful history and also sometimes really really troubling in terms of the way in which humankind has has tried to grapple with these issues at a time when there was no science whatsoever uh to, to to support them. Um, I guess my, my my main question is, uh, what is important about kno- knowing this history in terms of understanding this present crisis uh, that that you describe in the rest of the book? How does that history have a bearing on the present situation that confronts us?
1: Well, there are two theories about this. One is, if we don't know history, we're doomed to repeat it. And the other is that all we learn from history is that we never learn from history. But I think it's inherently interesting, and it does have um, important lessons. One is that there have been constant fads in the way we've understood human behavior. Going back to the shaman, my guess is that people don't change much. That Human nature is a very, very sort of solid given. The way we understand human nature, the way we understand symptoms, can change radically, and has changed radically over the days. That the, the shaman thought that it was someone violating a taboo and having the spirits angry. Um, the the priest thought it was the gods that were angry. Um, demons inhabiting the person would account for the aberrant behavior. Um, We've had um, a million different psychiatric models over the the ages, and often these led to horrible treatments. Most of the treatments that were given to psychiatric patients, often well-meaning, but often uh, poisonous and toxic. The lesson is that we should be very suspicious of any new idea, that any time lots of patients suddenly have a diagnosis, that means it's being overdone. If we get a tripling of ADHD, it's not doesn't mean that kids have more ADHD symptoms. It means that we've relabeled them. When the rate of autism goes up by 40 times, that doesn't mean that you know kids shouldn't be vaccinated because there's an epidemic of autism. It means that we've relabeled the definition of autism to make it much more inclusive. And we should be looking for the, the society reasons and the, the um, professional practice reasons whenever there's an increase in rates, not imagining that the people have changed. Mm. I think once you get into skepticism, and whenever it seems like everyone has a new diagnosis, that means that probably lots of people are getting it, don't have it, you become much more cautious in your therapeutic interventions and uh, much more careful in the way you label people.
0: Hmm. Uh, one of the most uh, intriguing points you make, I think, in the book is helping us understand uh, the human need to label, to name uh, and and the fact that we we almost seem wired to do this, and uh, and this is a particular field in which we seem especially hungry, and, and maybe it is because of the kind of intangibility of of the typical mental illness or emotional disorder that uh, naming it, giving it a title, putting it in a book, listing a criteria of symptoms, and so on sort of gives us a handle by which we can maybe approach and confront and potentially treat uh, these disorders which can otherwise be so so bewildering, so disconcerting. Can you uh, talk a moment about this urge we have to name and uh, and why that it is especially present in this arena?
1: You know, I think that the human condition isn't easy, it never has been. Uh, We've always struggled with external uh, traumas and stresses and and difficulties and with internal um, symptoms and reactions that were puzzling and disturbing. You take a patient today with psychiatric symptoms, and if you label them, and if you label them accurately, it's a wonderful moment. I mean, I think the best moments I've had in psychiatry are with people who've uh, come in in the worst day of their lives Um, feeling that um, there's no way of understanding their problems, that they're uniquely damned, and that they're doomed to a future of uh, continuing distress. And explaining in simple matter-of-fact, this isn't rocket science terms, what the problem is and um, how we understand its it's, uh, causation, what's the likely prognosis and course, and how we can improve it with treatment. And at the end of 45 minutes, a person's life looks completely different. They go from being alone and misunderstood to having a sense of optimism about the future. It's a very satisfying moment for the patient, very satisfying for me or any person who's participated in something like this. The trouble is that um, very often the education and the labeling is done by someone who doesn't have much expertise and spends seven minutes doing it, and so, too influenced by drug companies. Under those circumstances, the diagnosis is often wrong, and once given has a life of its own. But once you get a diagnosis, it's very hard to eliminate. It tends to live in the chart. It lives in your mind. It lives in other people's minds. And if it's inaccurate, it can lead to disastrous downstream consequences. So the tendency to label is is a way of controlling, uh, which, otherwise, which otherwise feels uncontrollable. It's a natural, it's a useful way. It's a way we cognitively shape our world. But it can also lead to premature closure around wrong answers that will cause
0: much more harm than good. Hmm. You make an important point that psychiatry is not alone in this kind of overreaching. It is uh, just one example of what you call the bloat and waste that characterizes all of U.S. medicine. When it comes to confronting it, uh, does this particular issue present enough unique challenges that it needs to be attacked in sort of a unique way versus through other avenues that would seek to sort of revise and, and, and reshape the the, the the overall medical system in this country.
1: Well, I was just at a meeting of the uh, International Guideline Network and very, very uh, happy about the fact that they're going to begin um, an effort to provide guidelines for guideline makers that will restrict the wild overdiagnosis of uh, disease by restricting the freedom people have to change the definitions. This is, of course, all of medicine. I was only a psychiatrist there. But I think that the psychiatry alone can't reform itself. But all of medicine is bloated, especially in the U.S. We, we spend uh, almost two times as much as many other similar countries on medical care and have worse outcomes. We don't do well in terms of overall outcomes, although we're spending fortunes. And the reason for it is we're spending these fortunes in the wrong way. We're over-testing and over-treating. Psychiatry is a very small part of this, of course, all of medicine. And I think that there's going to be a rebound, partly because we can't afford to do this anymore. The 18% of our GDP is going to medical care. can't afford that this go up to 25%. Um, which is going to happen unless we get control of the way we're doing things. But also partly because there's a strong realization that over-testing can cause harms. Uh, The prostate situation is the best example. Everyone was, All men were recommended to get prostate testing after um, age 60. No one should get it unless they have a family history or other risk factors because it turned out that we were discovering lots of prostate cancers that weren't going to change the person's life that should have been left alone, but the discovering them resulted in all sorts of invasive treatment. People died at the same age they would have died without the test, but they had a much less satisfying life along the way because the treatments were so invasive and difficult. Mm. I think that psychiatry is this one special case of a massive commercialization and overtreatment in all of medicine, and we have to come back to common sense, not just in my field, but in the others as well.
0: And of course, come to a better understanding of what it means to be normal, and your book spends a a long time uh, dealing with that matter as well, and all of the other specific and interesting details that are part of this uh, very, very alarming situation. The book, again, Saving Normal, is a paperback from William Morrill, an imprint of Harper Collins. Dr. Alan Francis, thank you so much for writing this important book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it.
1: Well, thank you for being the perfect reader and a terrific interview. It's really interesting.